Nelly Yashikoach. I'm so glad that you chose to speak today about how important it is to ask for help and also to give help. Your message is actually really countercultural in America. And it's a message that we desperately need right now. I want to say more about that in a minute, but first I want to point out the ways that your message resonates throughout the rest of your Parsha and really throughout Jewish tradition. First of all, let's note that your portion, Yitro, is the big one, as I mentioned before. It is the one where our people stand at Mount Sinai and meet God. And this is also the one where we receive the Ten Commandments. And our people chose to start this Torah portion with a lesson about delegation and asking for help. And this wisdom came not from a wise elder among the Israelites, but from a foreigner, from a tribal leader of another nation. In fact, a nation, the Midianites, who would become one of the Israelites' biggest enemies. The portion is named for that foreign leader. Think about it. We've chosen to name what's arguably our most important Torah portion for a non-Israelite. There's a recognition that not all wisdom is our own and that it's important to be in a relationship of mutual aid with others beyond the boundaries of who we might think of as us. That's chapter 18, and you taught us about it beautifully. And then we get to chapter 19, where God invites us into covenant, into breach. And Jewish tradition tells us that we're all in this breach, in this covenant or partnership with God. If you really hear my voice and keep my covenant, God says, I will make you a sigula, a treasure to me. God is asking us to listen. God is asking us for a relationship. You could even say that God is asking for our help to be God's partners in the world. Now, as context for this co covenant, God uses an interesting metaphor to remind us that this is the same God who brought us out of Egypt. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to me, God says. What does this mean, that God carried us on eagles' wings? Rashi, quoting the Midrashic collection, Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, says, an eagle bears its fledglings upon its wings. Scripture uses this metaphor because all other birds place their young between their feet, since they're afraid of another bird that flies above them. But the eagle flies higher than all the other birds and only fears human beings because we might shoot an arrow at it. Therefore, the eagle places its young upon its wings, saying, better that the arrow should pierce me than pierce my young. Rashi says that God acted like that eagle when God stood as a cloud between us and Pharaoh's army at the edge of the sea. I love this image of God like a big mother bird and us like fledgling eagles protected on her wings. It's not just that I need your help to be my partners on earth, God is saying, but you need my help too. You're just little baby eagles. You need protection. You need to be carried sometimes. In fact, we need each other, God is saying. That's why I want to enter into covenant with you. And then we have the idea that not only does God need us and we need God, but that we Israelites need each other as one big collective community. Because when we're standing at Mount Sinai, God speaks not only to Moses, but to all of us directly, every one of us. This is a very rare dynamic in world religion. In most religions, the deity speaks through and to an elect person, a prophet, a priest, or an elect class. And direct contact with the divine is limited to that person or class. Everyone else has to go through them 
to reach God. But Adonai goes to great efforts to make sure that every one of us can hear and see directly, warning the people to stay pure for three days, marking off a boundary around the mountain so that the people can get close but not dangerously close, and afterward re-emphasizing the point that God spoke not just to Moses, but, or not just to the priests, but to everyone, the whole community together. Say to the children of Israel, God says, you yourselves saw that I spoke to you from the very heavens. What's this message? All of the people matter, every one of them. And then there's chapter 20 in this same Parsha, the Ten Commandments, the big ten of all the 613 meets vote of the Torah. And people often try to separate ritual versus ethical meets vote. They try to make them into two categories, thinking of ethical meets vote as those that, about how we relate to other people and ritual meets vote as those that we do on our own. But in Judaism, there are no meets vote that you do on your own. Because both of these categories are understood to be about relationships. They're called bein adam lechavero and bein adam lemakom, between one person and another, and between a person and God. In other words, our actions, our mitzvot, are always in the context of a relationship. So if we add together Yitro's model of leadership and social organization, and the formation of covenant, and the revelation at Sinai, and the content of the Ten Commandments and the mitzvot, all of which are in this week's Parsha, we find these notions. Number one, every person matters. Number two, many people have a role to play, a valuable role, a needed role. Society should be structured to involve as many people as possible in helping. God needs our help and we need God's help and that's why we're in covenant with one another. A way that we help God is meets vote and those are about being in relationship either with people or with God. The primary unit of society is not the individual but the collective. However, our collective well-being depends on the well-being of all the individuals in the society. American society has been rooted in rugged individualism since the frontier days, though it was Herbert Hoover who coined that term. And according to a 2016 Pew study, 57% of Americans today do not believe that success in life is determined by forces outside of your own individual control. And therefore, 58% value a non-interventionist government over one that actively works, works to meet the needs of the society. The pull yourself up by your bootstraps ideology is easy to criticize with an eye on social systems that benefit some and keep others down. That's a message that you often hear from this Bima. But today I want to speak about how we here in Park Slope, Brooklyn, are at the epicenter of another version of this individualist ideology that is popular with progressives, but just as toxic as the Marlboro Man, if not more so. And that is the particular brand of meritocracy within which many of us have lived our whole lives and often therefore cannot even see. It has shaped our biases, or at least I'll say mine, you decide if it's for you too, and made them in many cases unconscious. Now, the lens of white privilege is an important check on these biases, but it doesn't actually get at the whole picture of what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm talking about. We live from birth in a competition with one another and everyone else in our society. On one hand, we were taught and we teach our kids to share and to feel empathy and to look out for the underdog or the excluded. On the other hand, we were taught and generally teach our children to win. 
The overriding goal of our childhoods and our children's childhoods is to succeed at this competition. It's a competition for a narrow set of seats in a select set of schools that lead to other schools that confer a brand on us and on our children and lead to specific opportunities that are at the top of the merit pyramid. It's a competition that values a specific kind of intelligence based on verbal, writing, and analytical skills, or alternatively, math and science, and in the ability to excel at written tests and to craft paragraphs. We all know that those are actually not the full breadth of intelligence intelligences that human beings possess. And we all know that our society needs people who are not lawyers or writers or doctors or academics. And many of us might bristle at pressuring our kids to win on the sports field no matter what, but how many of us pressure our kids or felt pressure ourselves to win in this arena? My sense is that Park Slope is full of a lot of people who won this competition in our lives. How many of us went to a college that has a name that people know and want our kids to go to a college with a name that people have heard of? And we might think that this competition is about economic well-being, that we all, all we want is for them to be able to get by in the society. But the average plumber in New York City makes the same or more in annual salary as the average New York Times writer or academic. And which one are we directing our children toward? Let me be clear, this is not an anti-intellectual message against humanities or history or civics or literature or ideas. Has shalom, God forbid, that is not what I am saying. In many countries, plumbers speak three languages and have read all the great books and can argue philosophy and can tell you in detail about the history of their region. This is about a particular American meritocratic competition that governs our lives. Beyond the ways that this narrow competition for elite prizes affects childhood, beyond the ways that it limits our visions for what our lives could be, beyond the fact that it has generated a resentment of us, us elites in blue coastal cities, among the rest of America who are generally understood to have lost this competition and who see us as smug and believing ourselves superior, and a resentment that shows up at the ballot boxes, beyond all of this, it teaches us that other human beings are obstacles to our success and happiness that we don't rise and fall together, but we are fundamentally against each other, that when you fail, it gives me a better chance of succeeding, or at least I look better comparatively. That zero-sum ideology, which is fabricated, is a primary force behind schadenfreude. It is the opposite of what Torah teaches. We can do better. And doing better can't mean creating more schools that help you win the college race. Doing better has to mean that we opt out of this system, that we challenge our biases about what a good life looks like and stop running the race to nowhere. Those of us who've won that race know that it does not buy you happiness. It buys you workaholism. It buys you grind culture. It buys you more racing to the top of the mountain in professional school or a field of work. Happiness has to come from somewhere else, so why not start that now? All of this is why I believe that the single most important thing that we do here at CBE is chesed. Chesed, which means loving kindness, is our work to help each other. Just as you taught us, Millie, 
We have more than 100, I think it's maybe now 150 chesed volunteers who do things like bring you soup or meals if you're sick or get you everything you need for shiva, or help you to install a light bulb, or figure out long-term care for an aging loved one, or bring you a home-baked challah when you're in mourning, or bring you a care package after you give birth, or get married, or retire, or visit you if you're stuck at home all alone. Now Chesed even has a Hever Kadisha who'll lovingly take care of your body when you die. With Chesed, by helping each other, we are remaking the world. We are enacting a microcosm of how the world should be totally aligned with this week's Parsha and Judaism itself. Every person matters. Many people have a role to play in helping. God needs our help and we need God's help. Mitzvot are how we help and they're about being in relationship. The primary unit of society is not the individual but the collective. Our collective well-being depends on the well-being of all the individuals within the society. That is what the world should look like. But chesed cannot be window dressing. It cannot be like when we tell our kids to value empathy as long as they actually come out on top. Chesed only remakes the world if we allow it to remake ourselves. If we become people who can readily acknowledge, as you taught us, Millie, that we need help and make ourselves vulnerable enough to receive it from others. If we rebuild our world so that when you fall, I fall, and when you rise, I rise too, because that's actually true. It's actually true that for all the big challenges in our society, all the challenges we face in our world, we rise or fall together. It is time to stop fighting for the same few tired prizes that don't even make anyone happy. There are a lot of things we cannot control in our society right now, but this is something we can control because it starts with us. Shabbat shalom.